The beginning of 1 Kings is the story of the grandness of the kingdom that God had established for his people under King David and then even more so under Saul. The amazing beauty of the temple, the glory of the military and might and power, the beauty of the wisdom that he had in order to judge the people righteously. God had done a marvelous thing in establishing the, king, uh, the kingdom, the throne of David. And then we come to chapters 10 and 11, and things begin to crash and burn pretty rapidly. So we've been in chapter 11, we've just read verses 26 through 43, the beginning of the story of Jeroboam. But prior to this, we remember that Solomon had begun to worship other gods. We saw the trajectory begin with him worship with with him marrying women from the land of Canaan that he was forbidden that all of the Israelites were forbidden from doing that precisely because they would lead to the Israelites worshiping other gods and that of course is what happened with Solomon but I don't know if you noticed that in this passage that we just read, there's this turn from talking about Solomon to talking about the rest of the people, the people of Israel. Verse 33 says, They have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. These are the same gods that Solomon was described as worshipping. Now all of a sudden it says they. They who? The Israelites. They have not walked in my ways. You know, sometimes language and translation work can be pretty hard. It's important for us to not assume that we know better than God's Word and try to, to, try to clean it up. I mean, if you were, if you were reading this... <clears throat> It would be easy to miss the fact that it switched to they, right? Maybe some of you did. Maybe some of you didn't notice. It's been talking about Solomon and his sin in the previous chapter and a half. And now it's been talking about him uh, in the previous verses. And then immediately afterwards, his father, David. It switches from they to his. In the same sentence, same verse. 
And then he continues to talk about Solomon after that. Well, this is not that surprising if you think about it. The leaders are like the people, aren't they? The people are like the leaders, aren't they? And so if Solomon is worshiping false gods, what do you think is happening with the rest of the people? They're worshiping the false gods too. Well, we know that from the text now, right? But if you think about why, if you think about what you would expect, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Who wants to fight with Solomon? Most powerful king in the world. Wealthiest man in the world. Wisest man in the world. You're going to argue with him? Not too many people are going to argue with him, are they? And so he leads the people. They, they don't feel any need to argue with him. If, well, if Solomon's doing it, I guess he's wise. He's blessed of the Lord. I guess we can do it too, right? And so they begin to fall into sin the same way that Solomon did. He leads them into sin. And yet, and yet... Do you think that Solomon could just build a temple to Chemosh if the people weren't already given over to the worship of Chemosh? You, you see how this is bi-directional? There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing unilateral about this. It's not like Solomon said, now you must begin worshiping these false gods. We don't see that, right? And it's not like the people came to Solomon and said, Now Solomon, we're sick of the worship of Yahweh. We're going to begin to worship false gods and we don't care what you have to say about it. No, it's just this, it's just this natural thing where the leaders and the people, they end up in the same place. It's the way it happens. Of course, we've got examples of those kinds of unilateral things, and we'll see one actually soon with Jeroboam demanding that the people stop worshiping Yahweh and begin to worship a new way, a new God, and a new place in complete opposition to God's requirements, right? That kind of thing does happen, but it's also very, very common that Leaders and their people just end up doing the same things, worshiping the same things. They come from the same country, from the same tribes, from the same cloth. They are the same. And so as we see this falling apart that begins and really goes through the rest of the book of Kings, which First and Second Kings was originally one, one long book, right? But do you know, kids, why they would split it into two books? Any of you guys have any idea? It's a, it's a tough question. Do you, know, do you know how books were published in 900 BC? What? On scrolls. That's right. 
Now, if I want to go from 1 Kings 11, which is where I have my Bible open to right now, if I want to go back and read something from 1 Kings 1, watch this. There's 1 Kings 1. But do you know what would happen if I took all these pages and I taped them together into one long piece of paper and I wanted to go from chapter 11 back to chapter 1? Either I'd have to have a very long table, right, and put a weight on it down here, and then probably just the first 11 chapters in this tiny type, I would guess, to about here, because remember, they're double-sided, right? All right. And I'd have to run back over here to read chapter 1, and run back over there to read chapter 11, or we could roll it up in a scroll, but then you know what I'd have to do? Have you guys ever tried to roll a scroll? As it said back in chapter 1, let's see here, nope. Can you imagine if you put 1st and 2nd Kings together, how long that scroll would be? So you cut it in half. And you've got 1st Kings and 2nd Kings. Now you know. Now what were 1st Kings and 2nd Kings? This long book, what, what, that one book all together, what was it all about? Awful lot of it is about the falling apart of the kingdom that God had established. Right? We read about these kings in the book of Kings. Makes sense, right? We read about a lot of kings, and how many of them are good kings? Maybe some of you know this. I don't know. I don't know. How many of them are described as good kings? You got an answer? We're going to have to, it's going to take some work to figure out whether you're right. Eight. Who thinks he's right? He's probably right. <laughs> All right, we'll try to figure it out. An infographic. He's cheating. <laughs> this man reads off an infographic. <laughs> Eight of them. How many of them were on the other side? 20-something like that. There's not very many good kings in this book, and there's a lot of sad things that happen in the book of Kings. So why does God record for us in Kings this beautiful story at the beginning of David passing on the kingdom to his son Solomon Avoiding the danger of it being taken over by Adonijah, right? The establishing of Solomon's strength, the giving of Solomon wisdom, the, the, the building up of the kingdom, the strength, the might, the beauty, the wealth, all of this at the beginning. And then, that's only nine chapters, and then... For the rest of the time, it's not, nothing anywhere near that. 
nothing remotely that good. Is it because God likes to depress us? Is that God's goal of giving us the book of First and Second Kings? What do you think? No. No, that's not God's goal. Why did God give us this book? Why does God tell us about Jeroboam? Well, there's a couple of different ways of answering the question of why God gives us this book, which is, we have to admit, a bit of a downer. Okay? One of the reasons that you might say is because it's not uncommon for God's people to live through difficult, sad, trying times. And there's plenty that we can learn from it, right? Another reason that you might say is because it is meant to be a very serious warning to us that we must serve the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength or else look what happens. Look what happens. One of the things that I want us to make sure we see as we study 1 Kings is connected to both of those. It's that warning, yes. It's also that there is something to be beneficial to us in seeing God's people in those trying, difficult times. And that is that as we read 1 Kings, and as, even as we begin to see the downfall of the kingdom, where it begins to split apart, what we see is God accomplishing his good plan. Even when all of these things are falling apart. In fact, God is accomplishing his good plan by bringing these things about. And so yes, we are to learn from what the people of God went through. We are to learn that these things do come from God. And we get plenty of bad examples and enough good examples of how to respond in these times to learn a lot about why these things happen, how we should respond, and to remember to trust God no matter what. Now earlier in this chapter, we saw that Solomon had some enemies that were a thorn in his side. They were from the outside though. They were not Israelites. Now we get Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is a little bit different because Jeroboam is somebody who is from the tribe of Ephraim, which is not a Canaanite, right? Not, not an Egyptian enemy, not a Canaanite enemy, an enemy from within God's own 
people. Those external enemies, they are clearly a problem for Solomon. They bother him. And they bother the people, right? But when you've got an enemy on the inside, that's an existential threat. And we see that in our passage. Verse 40, Solomon sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death. Solomon knew that Jeroboam was real, real trouble for the kingdom. He sought to put him to death. Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt. Egypt again, harboring the enemies, just like last week. But Jeroboam, Jeroboam is an enemy from within. It's quite a story, isn't it, when Ahijah shows up. We don't, we've, we've never heard of Ahijah, this prophet, before now. And all of a sudden, he just... There he is, and doing major things, right? This is kind of the way of the prophets. Often show up out of the blue, say something major that has major ramifications, give some sort of sign, and then leave. We'll see it again in Kings a couple of different times, this, this sort of boom showing up. And all of a sudden, everything's different. There's before Ahijah, the prophet, comes, sent from the Lord, and then there's after. And he shows up and he gives us, he gives Jeroboam, and we read of this, this picture, this very physical picture, Right? What does he do to make, to make it real to Jeroboam? What does he do to make it real to us? He takes his brand new cloak, right? Clothes were a lot more expensive back then. You all need to realize and what does he do? He takes it and he just See how many times I can do this. I got a two of them again, these ones. Okay. Here you take 10. Pretty shocking, isn't it? And you actually have to come do it. Come here. Come on, Max. Come here. Here, you take ten. No, you've got to count ten. What? Do I not know how to? Yeah, you tear them up. Give me, get ten. I think you miscounted, though. <laughs> All right, let me know when you've got 10. 
All right. There we go. I'll take those ones. Okay. Now you can sit down. Do you have any use of that? What's Is that paper good for anything? Not really, is it? It's kind of like getting a cloak and having it torn into 12 pieces and you getting 10 of them. I mean, you can't even sew it back together. It's pretty worthless, isn't it? But, boy, it's a reminder. Quite the reminder, isn't it? What a picture the prophets often give us. So, Jeroboam is an Ephraimite. And not just an Ephraimite, Jeroboam is a trusted man, isn't he? Jeroboam is a trusted man that Solomon trusted. Not just that the people trusted. And now you've got more than ten. You've got to stop tearing it up. You're only supposed to have ten. So, what does it say about Jeroboam? It says that uh, he was industrious. And Solomon saw that he was industrious. And so Solomon appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And it says that he was a valiant warrior. Well, he was a man worth noticing, wasn't he? And Solomon noticed him, and Solomon gave him responsibility. Not just was he from within the kingdom, but he was given responsibility at the highest levels in the kingdom. So when Jeroboam turns against Solomon, we need to think of it like it would be a uh, what? You know, the coup attempt. Right? It's a coup attempt. And coup attempts are generally not caused by uh, outsiders, are they? Coup attempts are brought about by insiders. And not just people who live in the country, but people who have power, people who have authority, people who have responsibility in the government. This is why it's often the military that suddenly is attempting a coup in Ethiopia, for example, or wherever else. This is a major, major problem because this man has worked with and gotten the support of many, many people. When an outsider comes in and starts trying to stir up trouble, well, they can, they can sit on the road and start harassing travelers and they can sack a town and... and they can do a number of things, but they're probably not going to get the country to turn against the rulers, right? But Jeroboam, 
he might well do that. He might well be able to do that. Enemies within are real danger. Have you ever thought about how terrible it is? How much suffering there is when people inside a church begin to turn against each other and fight against one another? It's sad how common that is. There's probably little that's worse than when some church leader, a man with responsibility, turns against the senior pastor. You've got a real mess on your hands, don't you? When you have somebody from the outside come in to cause problems in a church, generally, everybody gangs up and kicks them out, right? It's kind of like when brothers are fighting with each other and then somebody else comes in and starts trying to pick on one of them. All of a sudden, they're all united. But if nobody from the outside comes in and it's just fighting on the inside... What a mess. The reason I bring up churches is because I want you to see that what's at stake is the kingdom of God here. The kingdom that God had promised to establish was to be in Jerusalem, was to be under David and his line. The kingdom that God had established, that he had promised, his Messiah would come from. That's what's at stake here. This is both why it's absolutely essential that God deals with the idolatry of Solomon and the people. Right? You can't have that in the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of God is pointless. It's no longer the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Chemosh. The kingdom of God is not going forth. Even if Solomon goes and defeats Egypt. If Solomon doesn't worship God. Right? And so God has to deal with the sin of his people. That idolatry. But it's also why we have to understand the church today is a great example. If the church is engaged in idolatry, it's no longer the church of Christ. Now here's here's what's so beautiful about The book of Kings. God keeps his promise. He has established his kingdom. He has established his kingdom. 
And he makes clear that no matter what the people do, no matter what sins they engage in, no matter what wicked people come, no matter what outside pressures or inside divisions there are, he is establishing his kingdom. And there will be a son of David on the throne for all eternity. And the thing is, that's what we need to believe and know today still. That's the message of 1 Kings. That's what the church needs. We need to remember Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is the son of David. God has kept his promise. He will keep his promise. His word is sure. And it doesn't matter how bad you think it's gotten in your church, in the church in America, in the Christian culture as a whole, in the broader culture, in the Western world, in the third world. It doesn't matter. God is keeping his promise. He is establishing his kingdom. And when he has said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, you know it. You know it, absolutely. And so when you see 1 Kings and you see Jeroboam and you think, oh my goodness. Oh, if you put yourself in the place of anybody in that kingdom. And you actually think about what it would be. Okay, let's see. Uh... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to imagine being one of the workers under Jeroboam. Oh, great. This guy's great. He's a great leader. And now we've lost him. He's fled to Egypt. What's going to happen? What is going to happen? What terrible things could happen? What if you're one of Solomon's children? Oh my goodness. Jeroboam might come back and we know what's... You know, he's going to... We could all end up dead. This happens in kings. All the king's children end up dead. Various times, right? The last month I've asked myself this question many, many times. Whew. What might happen? There have been a number of situations in the church, outside the church. You see some situation, you, you see some condition you see some relationship and all of a sudden you're thinking oh man I've seen this end in disaster I've heard stories recently of Christian business partners that end up at each other's throats Oh man, what might happen? I've seen 
times of transition where everything seems to go bad, bad. Where one church leader turns against another, where the outgoing senior pastor is retiring and all of a sudden it's just mayhem and a mess. I've seen situations where churches divide and then divide again or divide and then both nothing left. I've seen situations where marriages are suddenly done. You think of examples where the husband or the wife is taken away by death. It's just, that's it. It's over. And then you think of examples where the husband or the wife commits adultery and this time the enemy's from within. And it's worse, isn't it? Some things are worse than death. Is God able to accomplish his plan when Jeroboam comes? If the kingdom's divided... Yes, as a matter of fact, because God is the one who said it would happen. God is the one who said, I am going to do this. Now, in Kings, it's easy to see that it's so explicit. It's in the first half of the chapter. It's in the second half of the chapter. It's in 2 Samuel. The promise that God is fulfilling. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. God's going to use other people. Sometimes they're going to be wicked men that he uses to give the strokes. And then you can see it here where he's already said, that he's going to take the kingdom away from Solomon's son. We see it again. It's told to uh, Jeroboam. Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. And it's easy to see that and be like, okay, well, God's doing this. But is it easy to see what's going on in your life you don't, have any, you don't have any care over whether the, whether the kingdom of Israel falls apart. It doesn't affect you. But what about when it's your family? What about when it's your church? What about when it's your relationships? Can you look at those things and say, yeah, God is accomplishing his work. It's so wrong. So wrong for Jeroboam to turn against Solomon, isn't it? So wicked. So unlike David, who had also been promised the kingdom. 
and yet who refused to turn against Saul, didn't he? Over and over and over again, he said, no. No, I will not turn against Saul. And Jeroboam's been promised 10 of the tribes that he will rule. God has promised, if you obey me, if you keep my commandments, if you turn your heart to me like David, I'll establish a kingdom for you like I established one for David. But Jeroboam's not content with that, is he? He rebels. He rebelled against the king. It says in verse 26. So here, you've got this terrible thing going on and it's hard for us to care. But you see the terrible things in your own life and you're, and you're, you care. You care. You see the things that are terrible that are happening to other people that you love and you care. You see the dangers of conflict. You see an assistant pastor begin to attack his senior pastor. And boy, boy is it wrong, isn't it? And yet isn't it Isn't it so often the case that God is using the sons of men to discipline the sons that have turned aside, that have turned astray? God is so often punishing those who have built their own kingdom rather than his And in the end, that's what Solomon had done, isn't it? The kingdom of God had been established, but then at the end, it's no longer the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Solomon. It's the kingdom of the worship of idols. And how quickly, how easy it is for churches to become that. Started strong, blessed by God, given great fruit, And then what? Then the pastor begins to worship idols. You think, surely not. And I say, have you no eyes? Have you not seen it? It is everywhere. Not Milcom and Chemish. No, we don't have those gods today. But money? Oh, we've got that. I was just reading of a hero of the Reformed Church pastor that has been more successful and well-loved probably than most other pastors that have ever lived by faithful men and women. Giving himself over to just lies. Lies. 
Lies, lies, lies. Bragging about himself in ways that are just false. And stupid. What drives somebody to say, oh yeah, I was playing, I, I was recruited to play pro football. When they were never recruited to play pro football. What drives a pastor to, to lie like that? You've got to be kidding me. What's going on there? Whose kingdom are you building? It doesn't matter what you were doing for the last 20 years. Whose kingdom are you building right now? Now, Imagine yourself in the position some of you have been in before where a church is being divided. The pain, the misery, the sorrow, the questioning of what's going on. And listen to this from 1 Corinthians 11. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Big divisions and small divisions end up with groups, factions, in the local church, in the broader church. And what I want you to see is God uses these. We're told in the New Testament that God is accomplishing his plan even through these divisions. And what is his plan? His kingdom will be established. His kingdom will be established. His promises will come true. He's fulfilling his plan. The great kingdom of Solomon has come to an end. Solomon dies in this passage. And that's it. It's just done. And Rehoboam only gets this much of it. And even that, he makes a hash of it, doesn't he? The kingdom of Solomon is done. But God's kingdom? God's kingdom will be established without fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so merciful to us by giving us your word, by showing us through Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, through the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians, that you are accomplishing your plan. That you are making sure that your church will be established. Father, that you are placing King Jesus on the throne. Father, we see these things 
in your word. Help us now as we struggle through sorrows in this life, as we struggle through divisions and factions, worries and fears, deaths of ones we love, falls of kingdoms of men. Father, let us look to your kingdom with joy and gladness and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.